0: He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth the woman said i know that messiah called christ is coming when he comes he will explain everything to us then jesus declared i the one speaking to you i am he just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman but no one asked what do you want or why are you talking with her then Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world.
1: Amen. You may be seated. be honest, we changed the order of service. And uh, I can't believe you stood for the whole reading of scripture. Amazing. Amazing. Would you uh, join me in a quick prayer? And then we will continue to talk about the text. Jesus, thank you that you are with us this morning that as we gather in this space, we do so in the midst of your presence, that you're here with us. You're here with us, waiting to greet us, waiting to see us, waiting to see us. God, thank you that that is true here, but it's also true as we leave this place, go to our work, go to our families, go to our friend groups, that you are with us and you see us. God help us to pay attention to the reality of that good news today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, If you know me, my name is Johnny, uh, by the way. If you know me, or maybe you can just tell by looking at me, um, I am a very big nerd. And of all the nerdy things that I love, which there are many, the nerdy thing that I love the most is Lord of the Rings as any overeducated white guy does and uh <laughs> I love Lord of the Rings so much that I reread the books every couple of years, including, like, the compendium resources like The Silmarillion, or The Children of Hurin or The Lay of Baron and Luthien. Everybody's like, weird flex. My cat is named after a small character in The Silmarillion, Luthien, uh, the elven princess. We rewatch the movies every couple of years, actually probably, like, a few times a year. We're big fans. Uh, and you may know from your experience with Lord of the Rings, who the big villain is in the trilogy. It is the Dark Lord Sauron. And uh, I had to do everything in my power to say that name normally, because everything in me wanted to say it in my best, like, fantasy accent. I had to do it. Watch out. It's the Dark Lord Sauron is the big enemy. And Sauron is always depicted as a giant... Flaming eye, which we have presented here for you. Uh, if, If you remember, when I came in today, Haley just had this image sitting on the screen. I was like, this is the way to welcome people to church. (laughs) with the dark eye of Sauron. But the eye of Sauron is always considered like the symbol of the Dark Lord in Lord of the Rings. And if you remember from the movie, it is like a spotlight. It searches the land trying to discover who has the ring, trying to find who's thwarting the eye's purpose. And there's this very amazing quote from um, Saruman the White describing the eye, which I think is important. This is relevant, I promise. Saruman describes the, the eye this way, saying, Sauron's gaze pierces cloud, shadow, earth, and flesh. It is a great eye, lidless, wreathed in flame. And the eye is considered both terrible to behold and to be beholden by. No one wants to see the eye, and no one wants to be, more importantly, seen by the eye. Because to be seen by the eye is to be seen by something that knows too much about you and hates all of it. The eye is, when it sees you, it sees you in malice and it sees too much of you. And you don't want to expose that part of you. You don't want to give that part away. And so it is terrible to behold. Now here's where this is relevant. Let me ask you a question. What is it like... To be seen by God. What is it like to be seen by God? What images, what ideas, what thoughts, what metaphors come into your mind when you imagine, when you think about being seen, being known by God? We are in a series right now, as Heather mentioned, called Brother Sister. And the purpose of the series, the big theme of this series, is we are exploring spiritual security and spiritual insecurity. We're exploring what does it look like and what does it mean to develop healthy, strong, spiritually secure connection to God. That language, uh, again, as we talked about last week and earlier today, that language comes from the world of attachment science. And attachment science studies how we form relationships, how we form connections with one another. And what we're learning from attachment science is that we all have different styles or approaches to developing relationships with one another. And those styles, those approaches, they can fall on a spectrum of secure and insecure. Now, to in that spectrum isn't like a moral statement. It doesn't mean you're bad or that you're good, or even that the relationship is bad or that it is good. It can come from a lot of different places. Our experiences in life, the stories we believe, the values that we hold can all shape the way we relate to one another, the way that we develop connection, the way that we move close to one another. And some of those ways can feel really deeply secure, like we're operating in a relationship out of a deep sense of confidence and a deep sense of self-trust and a deep sense of self assuredness, and sometimes in even really good relationships and even really healthy relationships something can happen where we feel like we're operating out of something a bit more insecure where there's some anxiety coming or fear coming. If you've ever loved someone or been a friend with somebody or been in a a working relationship with a boss you probably know how you can respond in secure and insecure ways. We all operate out of this thing. And as that is true of one another, and as that is true of the relationships that we have with one another, that's also true of how we relate to God. We can relate to God on a spectrum of secure to insecure ways. Sometimes in our connection to God or our relatedness to God, we feel deeply secure and deeply safe and like it is easy to trust and like it's easy to risk and like it's easy to repent or to acknowledge or to move closer. But sometimes, and and for some of us more often than not, the way we relate to God feels more insecure. And thinking about God knowing us or God seeing us or moving close to God triggers fear or triggers some anxiety or triggers some shame or maybe it triggers something that then you shove down because you actually don't want to experience and so you avoid. It can trigger different ways of relating and knowing God. And again, I don't say that as like a moral statement, like it's good or it's bad because the truth is, is we do that for so many different reasons experiences that we have had, the ways that we have been raised, theologies that we believe, things that we believe about God can actually push us into insecure ways of relating to and connecting to God. And so for all of us, regardless of what we feel like in this moment, for all of us, there is always on the table an invitation to more secure relationship with God, more secure connection to God. So the purpose of this series, the whole conversation we're having from this moment all the way to the end of Lent and at the forum and at all these other resources that we are curating is this conversation. How can we move into more secure connection to God? What could that look like and what could that do in our lives? Now, there's skills and tools that we need to learn in order to get us there, but on Sundays, the primary way that we are doing this is by looking at the person of Jesus. And the reason that we look at the person of Jesus when we're talking about relationship and connection to God is that the Bible tells us pretty often that Jesus is the image of God. In Colossians 1, Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and the writer of Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of God and the ultimate word, the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate revelation of God. So what that means for us is that if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. As we see Jesus interact with the woman at the well, we see how God interacts. In the story we were in last week, as we see God interact with Nicodemus, we see how God interacts. And in those moments and in those stories and in those experiences, we get to see how God interacts with us. How God moves towards us, how God feels towards us. And what we see is what the writer of Hebrews declares, is that as we see Jesus interacting with the world around him, the world around him, we see a God who is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2:11. Now that returns us uh, back to Lord of the Rings. <laughs> seamless transition. That returns us back to the eye of Sauron and the question that we asked at the beginning of this. What is it like to be seen by God? All relationships have a question of what does it look like to be seen by one another? What does it look like to be known by one another? And how you know one another and how you are seen by another person is part of what makes a healthy, strong, growing relationship. Do I feel trusted? Do I feel safe as I am seen? How I'm seen, how I am known is essential to any healthy relationship. And again, as that is true of how we relate to one another, it is especially true of how we relate to God. But it is hard to talk about how God sees us and how we relate to God in many ways because God is different than a person that we have a relationship with because God is God, right? God's the creator of the universe, the one who rules above all things and the language that we use about God and even the good things that we declare about God make this conversation kind of tricky. We believe that God is in heaven above ruling and reigning. We believe that God is on the throne. We believe that God sees all. We believe that God is the judge of the universe. And those are true things, and those are good things, but sometimes that declaration then can make God feel quite a bit like this. An all-seeing, fiery eye in the sky that scours and searches to discover And even if we believe that God loves us, the feeling can still come across that God scours to discover and find something out about us. And even if we believe that God loves us, the feeling can still come that to be seen by God is a terrible reality. That to behold or to be beholden by God is terrible. So what is it like to be seen by God? Because depending upon what we believe about God and what we believe about being seen by God will determine in many ways how we connect to, relate to God. Is God a safe place to be seen? Does it mean he doesn't challenge? Does it mean he doesn't change? Does it mean he doesn't heal? But is he safe? Or is he like a great eye in the sky that is always searching to discover and find something out about us and shame us or expose us, because that'll lead to a different kind of response. In John chapter 4, we get to see what God's seeing is like. As Jesus has an interaction with the woman at the well. In the text that we read this morning, that Meg read for us so beautifully, There is a lot of, like, context and history that is going in to make this moment what it is. Jesus and his disciples are heading back to Galilee. They're going home, and they come to a region called Samaria. And I was trying to think of, like, how do you illustrate the tension of a place like Samaria? And actually, there's a really good cultural reference. The the closest approximation I could find is it's really similar to, like, the Donbass region in Ukraine. It's a place that's been conquered— by a foreign adversary, and now it is rife with political and nationalistic and even racial and ethnic tension. Assyria, this ancient empire, conquered part of Israel and took that part into itself and sort of made it part of Assyria. And now the people there and the religion there is some kind of mixture of like Jewish heritage and Jewish faith and also Samaritan heritage and Assyrian faith. And they've kind of blended those things together. And now at this point, that empire has fallen. Assyria is no longer there and they live under new empires, but the ideological conflict is still present. The religious conflict is still present. The racial conflict is still present. Jewish people do not like Samaritans, which is why Jesus loves to use Samaritans as heroes throughout so many stories. The stories, the good Samaritan, is meant to be provocative. So the disciples are going through Samaria, and they come to this town and this very famous well that was dug by a patriarch of Israel, and Jesus decides that he's going to wait by this well, and he sends his disciples to go get a, a hoagie. This is the first food item I could think of. I've never said hokey in any other context. <laughs> he sends them in, and they all leave, which sets up a weird situation to begin with. Jesus is alone, sitting by the well. And who arrives at that well while he is waiting there? A Samaritan woman. Now, we've just named some of the tension that exists in this moment. She's a Samaritan. There's conflict between Jews and Samaritans, which she names in verse 9. This woman comes to the well and Jesus asks her for a drink and the woman is surprised by this interaction with Jesus. The Samaritan woman asks, why do you, a Jewish man, ask me for something to drink? You see that she's surprised and even a little confused at this interaction. Why are you asking me for a drink? I am a Samaritan woman. And the text, just in case we're confused about the tension, includes Jews and Samaritans don't associate with each other. So she's surprised to begin with at this interaction because of her heritage, her race, her culture, and also she's surprised because she's a woman, which this part names, and then the disciples name later in the moment. In verse 27, the disciples come back to this place. They see Jesus having this conversation, and the text says in verse 27, just then Jesus' disciples arrived and were, what? Shocked that he was talking to who? A woman. It's funny to yell, woman. (laughs) They're surprised because there's a Samaritan and a woman. And in Jewish culture and religious culture of the day, generally, men did not associate alone with women. They wouldn't be isolated with women. They wouldn't be alone with women. They wouldn't have conversations with women. So there's all of these rules. There's all of these barriers that are set up in this moment that make it a tentious conversation. She is a Samaritan woman. Samaritans do not interact with Jews. She is a woman. Religious leaders, Jewish men do not alone interact with women. So the tension is set. And in the midst of this strange tension, this strange moment, Jesus and this woman begin to have a conversation. And it's one of those moments that if you read much of Jesus, it happens occasionally where he seems to be very mischievous. He uses strange language. Has a circuitous conversation. It's like one of those moments you're just reading it and you're like, what? this is like a good Jesus thing. He's doing something. He's up to something in this moment. And in verse 13 to 16, the conversation they're having starts to get boiled down. Jesus asks her for a drink. They have a conversation about water. He twists it to talk about spiritual water. He offers her living water, and it begins to lead into this conversation. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of life that bubbles into eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and never need to come to this well and draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, get your husband and come back here. Moving into the climax of this passage. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, You are right to say that. I don't have a husband. Because, in fact, you have had five husbands. And the man you are with now isn't your husband. So you've spoken the truth. We need to pause here for a while this moment in the text that is so strange. There's all this tension around her being a Samaritan, around her being a woman, and having this conversation. And then they have this strange Jesus-y conversation, and it leads to this moment, this strange revelation. And we need to pause, because if we don't pause to think really carefully about this moment, we can bring a lot of assumptions to this text. Because this woman is easy to make assumptions about. We've just had this revelation that's very strange, and it would be really easy to then assume we know something about her. In fact, you've probably heard this, but as I was researching this text, it's very common to assume that she has been unfaithful to her husband's. Why else would she have five husbands? If she's not been consistently unfaithful, if she's not cheated on them and then cheated again, like she's a serial adulteress. That must be the case. I don't know if you heard that growing up or if you learned that in other commentaries. That's what I grew up hearing, and it's even what I saw in many commentaries. There's this other moment in this text where she comes to the well at noon And often I've heard that argued that she comes to the well at noon because she wants to avoid other women who would have come earlier in the day or later in the day. Now the reason I say those things is because it is interesting to note the Bible never says that. This text never says that she's been unfaithful. It never says that she's been a serial adulteress. It never says that she's cheated on her husband. It never says that she comes to the well at noon because she's ashamed or afraid of the experiences that she might have in other moments. Those are assumptions that are being brought to this text by primarily one gender of commentator. There is a kind of seeing that does not see at all. There is a kind of beholding that does not see at all. That instead of actually seeing another person, that instead of actually allowing another person's story to be their story, makes assumptions about that person, lays over them a narrative that is not in the text, that does not belong, that is not a part of their history, that has nothing to do with them. There is a kind of seeing that does not see at all. And this moment is so fascinating because I think, I have been thinking about this all week, that what if this text is in here and those details are omitted just to call our own bluff at some level? How easy it is to make assumptions that are not in the text. How easy it is to speak for Jesus when Jesus does not speak. How easy it is to speak for the writer when the writer does not speak. There is a kind of seeing that does not see at all. We all know this and have experienced this. There is a kind of seeing that makes assumptions about the others. There are kinds of seeing that are only about confirming the biases that we already have. There is a kind of seeing that is more about exposure than it is about curiosity or compassion or kindness. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, this, that's often what seeing feels like when we talk about God, and we talk about God especially in a religious contexts. It's less about being truly known, and it's more about being found out the great eye in the sky. It's just trying to find something out about you. It's trying to put the spotlight there and turn the judgment and turn the shame to catch you in a trap or to turn the lights on when something bad is happening and point and jeer. There's a kind of seeing that happens in the church, the kind of seeing that often is connected to God. And there's a good reason for it because it's often the kind of seeing that we experience from one another or from our own histories or from religious contexts. And that kind of seeing that lives on assumption and that lives in accusation and that lives in shame, it reduces the person who is being seen. Like this moment in this text is fascinating. Like I have always believed, this is just my own confession, I've always believed that this woman was an adulteress. That is such a reduction of her story. We don't know. And, and it could be even worse than that. What if she murdered all five of them? It doesn't say. We just immediately moved into one version of the story. And it's fascinating. It happens to be a sexualized version of the story for the woman character. She could have killed him. <laughs> it's weird how much you're laughing at that. It's a reduction of her narrative. It's a reduction of her story. It makes her less than, and it speaks for her in ways the text does not speak, in ways that Jesus does not speak. It fills in the gaps with our own words. And I do wonder, this is an inference in this moment, but I do wonder if that's how this woman has often felt. We don't know why she's had five husbands, but in no world does that feel good. It's not hard to imagine that assumptions have been made about this person, that stories have been laid on top of this person in a culture of piety where women are often named risks, where Samaritans are often named risks, it is not hard to imagine that the world around her, like our own world, has made some assumptions about her. There's a kind of seeing that does not see. As we return into this story, we get to see something different, a different kind of seeing. Jesus names these things, right? He names these things about her, clearly defining that she has had five husbands and lives with somebody who is not her husband. And what happens? It's fascinating what happens. Look at verse 28. This woman, who's just had these things revealed, puts down her water jar, and she goes into the city, and she says to all the people that are in the city, come and see a man who has told me everything I have done. Could this man be the Christ, the hero, the chosen one, the Messiah, the rescuer, the one that we've been waiting for? And all the people in the city leave to go and see Jesus. A fascinating interaction that has just happened. Jesus sees something, names something, but instead of it being a shaming experience, instead of it being an ex- a reduction experience, instead of it coming out of assumptions and reducing her story or giving her a narrative that does not belong, she has somehow found it to be quite liberating. So much so that she runs into the city and begins to declare to all that are there, come and see a man who saw me. See, there is a kind of seeing that sees. A kind of seeing that knows. A kind of seeing that, when seen, helps us begin to see. There's a great quote in your brother sister journals from a Bible scholar named Maida Staper. And she writes this What is life changing for the woman is, according to her, according to the text, that she has been entirely known. And that by being known, it has enabled her to know him. There's a kind of knowing that shames and reduces people. A kind of knowing that is about naming threats, that's about making assumptions, that's about finding out, turning the lights on, uncovering the dark deeds. But that is not how God sees In this text, Jesus moves close to the woman that is named a threat, and he sees her with loving curiosity. Bible scholar Mark Baker has this brilliant quote about this text. He says this, In the story of the woman at the well in John 4, we have an account of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, which is full of probing curiosity. In case we forget what curiosity is or or bring some other notions to it, he says this loving curiosity cares about the person. It's fascinating. And assumes that more is going on than we can see on the surface. That's the posture that Jesus takes when he sees her. He knows everything. We believe that. The text says that. It doesn't make assumptions doesn't write over her a narrative. He asks her questions full of grace and curiosity. He even says at the end of this moment that this moment was so empowering to him that he doesn't need to eat. It like fed him, which names her value, names the gift of this interaction. It's a loving curiosity with which he approaches. When uh, I was, I think we were 19, this is a stool conversation time, (laughs) When, I've had a lot of caffeine today, I think, is probably the issue. When we were 19, Tori and I were dating, and uh, there was a person I respected a lot, probably too much. Sometimes you need to know that about figures in your life. And we were sitting in a coffee shop, and he was our pastor at the time. And we're sitting in a coffee shop, and I don't remember how the conversation begins, but a, a conversation begins in which he begins to ask her a bunch of uh, really specific, minute theological questions. It was just one after another. And it, and it turned into what, what genuinely felt, especially now as an adult, like an, like an inquisition. It was just like, and, you, and you've maybe been in this moment where a leader or someone you care about is just like drilling you with theological questions. And if she would pause to answer, he would kind of hem. And you could tell just in his demeanor and in his posture if the question wasn't answered the right way. And we do this for like, I don't know, maybe like an hour. It was a long time that we're sitting in this conversation and, and, and he's grilling her and asking her questions and we get to the end of the conversation. This is a true story. We get to the end of the conversation and he authoritatively declares, oh, you're not a Christian. You must not be a Christian because you've not, you've not agreed to all the things that I determined are what it means to be a Christian. And they're specific, minute theological questions. And what I think is fascinating, I mean, there's so many things about this moment that are fascinating and terrible and strange, but this was a a pastor that we respected. Um, He had theological degrees, he he had a doctorate in theology. So he's wicked smart. So the differential there in terms of understanding is massive. But more importantly, my wife's mom was dying. She's like literally dying, and she is in this interaction with him asking for grace. She's like in this moment being like, would you be my pastor? And this is the response that she gets. It's not curious. It's not loving. It's not full of grace. Instead, all it is, it's like an SAT questionnaire of theological questions, because for some reason, that's the thing that seems to matter the most, is if you can't answer these questions, you don't get to be in. That is a kind of seeing that does not see. That is a kind of seeing that is not even interested in seeing. It is looking to confirm biases. It's looking to confirm assumptions that have already been made. That's looking for flags to be waved so that I can determine that you're in and that you're out. That you're a risk and you're not a risk. That you get to be my family and you don't get to be my family. And it is not how God sees. Father Gregory Boyle, uh, he's a figure that Heather talks about quite a bit. He runs a ministry called Homeboy Industries, and he works with uh, this is the hardest of dudes, right? They're guys who are interacting with like, gang violence. They're coming in and out of gangs, coming in and out of prison, hard dudes. He has this very beautiful quote that is such a perfect example of the kind of love and curiosity that God shows towards us that we so rarely show towards one another. Father Gregory Boyle says this. He says, Every homie I know who has killed somebody, setting the, setting the bar right here, every homie I know who has killed somebody Every one of them has carried a load 100 times heavier than I have ever had to carry. They've been weighed down by torture, violence, abuse, neglect, abandonment, or mental illness. They carry a load so much heavier than I have ever had to carry. Loving curiosity does not make assumptions and look for confirmation. Instead, it looks to see us in all that we are, to know all that we are, to see the whole of us, to know who we really are. The language the Bible often uses to describe the way Jesus interacts and sees us in this way is to call him a good priest or a faithful priest. Somebody who can see us, know us, and mediate or intercede on our behalf to God. In Hebrews 2, 11 and 17 to 18, we get this really beautiful description. The writer says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's not a shame to call us brothers and sisters. Therefore, because he is not ashamed, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. This was so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God. He became like us in every way, became closer than a brother so that he could know us, experience life with us, and be merciful and kind and curious. This was so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God, so that when God sees us these brothers and sisters. In order to wipe away the sins from people, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And since he himself experienced suffering when he was tempted. Christian historian Roberta Bondi has this really beautiful quote where she was wrestling with what it meant that God judges and that only God can judge. She says this, which I think is a powerful connection to this verse. She says that only God can judge us is true because it is only God who can look with compassion on the depth and variety of our individual experience and our suffering and know us as we really are. That's what it means that God sees. That's what it means that God knows. That's what it means that God sees you. And this is what happens for the woman at the well. She is seen by Jesus, truly, totally, Seen, She is known in compassion and grace and faithfulness. She is known in kindness. And it is a liberating sight. So much so that she enters the city and declares the good news of Jesus. Oh, I met someone who saw me. I met someone who knows me. This woman may be the first evangelist in all the Gospels. Before the disciples get it, she gets it. Before Nicodemus, the Pharisee we talked about last week, gets it, she gets it. And she goes and declares this Gospel, this good news, to the city around her. And it is the good news, the Gospel, that is being declared to us, that Jesus is a good High Priest, that Jesus sees in kindness and in mercy. Monsieur. as we close, what does it mean for you? Or what can it mean, maybe I should ask, that God sees you in this way? What does it mean that God sees you? God knows you. And God looks in mercy and kindness and with loving curiosity. That God does not make assumptions about you, even though God knows all things. I want to take a second and just pause for a moment of reflection before we continue to worship and before we come to the table to just imagine that question. This might seem strange or silly, so just bear with me. If this is an activity that feels a little bit outside of your comfort zone, but for a minute, would you just close your eyes and try to enter the story of the woman at the well? You come to Jesus, who knows all. What is it like to be seen? Just hold that question. Mr. as you hold that question, as you imagine what it looks like to, to meet Jesus and to be known by Jesus, you can continue to reflect with it. But would you bring that question when you're ready to this table? Every week we gather at the table. The elements are sealed right now still, but we break bread, take the cup. This picture, this symbol of Jesus being the faithful High Priest, who because He knows us, because He sees us, because He looks with faithfulness and kindness and mercy towards us, meets us again and again, and offers us Himself again and again. Missy, I want to pray. Continue to reflect and when you're ready, bring that question to this table and then we'll continue to worship. Jesus, thank you that you are closer to us than a brother. That you call us friends and siblings and family. That you entered into the world around us to know us. To see us not a spotlight from the sky, but as a friend and as a family member. As we hear this good news, this gospel proclaim that God so loved the world that he entered into it and gave himself for it, would it totally change the way we relate to you and connect to you? Would we know that we can love because we have been so loved. We know that we can see because we have been seen. And God would it lead to a sense of security, safety, a place to repent, a place to heal, because it is a place we are known, and a place that we are loved. Jesus, we want to believe to help our unbelief. In your name we pray. Amen.